0: Well, we're starting a new series this week, and it's about your identity. It's about who you really are. It's not who your ex-spouse called you uh, or what they called you or a coach or a parent or a step-parent or some teacher or authority. It's not even what the enemy tells you. It's what God says about you. Now, look at the screen. Anybody know what that is? If you've got toddlers, you probably know what it is. It's got all these different shapes on the inside and corresponding shapes on the outside. Now, being from South Carolina, as I am, that was our SAT tests. (laughs) Yeah, sad, I know. We were a little slow. Now, little children can get quickly frustrated trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Now, boys, we just get a hammer and try to slam it in. And that's what people do in life sometimes. It reminds me of millions of people who are equally frustrated with life. There are so many people trying to cram a square pig into a round hole, and it doesn't fit. There was a man named King Solomon, the richest guy that ever lived. He made Bill Gates look like a homeless man. He had every resource available to him. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes, I said to myself, I said to my heart, come now, let's just see what might fill up that hole in my heart. Solomon, as he puts it, tried everything under the sun to see if it would fill up that hole, that vacuum in his heart. He had real estate. He had mansions, palaces, security, gardens, parks, music, silver, gold, 700 women, 300 concubines. He had all the sex he wanted, all the best food, all the best wine, all the best parties available to anybody on earth. And the summation of his life— he said, it's all meaningless. It's just like chasing after the wind. It's like trying to cram a square peg in a round hole. Solomon discovered that deep within all of our hearts is a God-shaped vacuum. Proverbs 19, verse 22 says, here's my conclusion. What a man, what a woman desires, what they're really after is unfailing love unfailing love. And you probably sense that's true, that there's some of that in all of us that maybe says, maybe if I could just fill up this hole in my heart with this thing called love, uh, after all, that's what I'm looking for. We've got lots of movies in our culture that are about love stories, bookshelves sag with volumes of romantic novels, volumes and volumes of love songs. How many love songs have been written through the years? You know, love songs that pledge their total devotion, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. And if I'm the girl, I'm thinking, I'm going to get a restraining order on you. Or Teresa Yearwood's song, if you ever leave me, baby, you would take away everything good in my life. And I'm listening to that thinking, girl, get a life. If this dude is everything in your life, You're looking for love in all the wrong places. Or could I quote the great theologian Jerry Maguire, the movie with Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, three famous lines from that movie, some of you will remember, show me the money. The second line was, you had me at hello, and then the one that really gagged me was Tom Cruise looking at his, what, third wife, and says, you complete me. Oh, brother. Cindy and I have been married 45 years. Anybody remember that song, I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow? I think that's true. Our love does grow every day. I'd rather hang out with her than anybody else on the planet. She's my soulmate. She's my best friend. But take note. Make no mistake about it. Cindy does not complete me. And she would tell you, I don't complete her either. And that shouldn't shock you. It's like the woman who said, I thought I married Mr. Wright. I just didn't know his first name was always. (laughs) To expect another person to complete you, to expect another human being to fill up that hole in your heart is setting that relationship up to fail. That expectation is unrealistic and and unfair. Have you ever heard people, well, this is my better half? I don't want a half. I want a whole. You know, half means you're not complete. And I'm going to tell you something. An incomplete person, and we're all messed up, cannot complete anybody. So you don't want to go to the altar with somebody who's half of what they are. I want to marry somebody that's whole. Two wholes, not two halves. And I'm just saying, sometimes in marriage seminars, I think they get this goofy thing right. You complete me. That is stupid and not even possible. Only God can complete you. There's no woman, no man on earth that can complete you. Tom's found that. How many times has he been married? I don't know. Obviously, somebody incomplete in him, but it's just really, it's really a wrong thinking and unscriptural to think that a human being can make me whole. Now, they can be a blessing to you, of course, and occasionally affliction but they're not going to complete you. And I know many of you men would agree with me, but your wife's sitting with you and you're not going to say anything. And I bet a lot of women would say to me, he doesn't complete me, Ricky, not at all. I love my husband, but he's a long way from completing me. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs 19, 22, what a man, what a woman desires is unfailing love. So to expect or hope, for imperfect people like you and me to complete you is setting yourself up for huge disappointment. Now, doesn't that make sense? If we're fallible human beings, we can't give each other unfailing love. It's not even possible. This past few years, and even more recently, magazines and news outlets have alerted us to identity theft. 40 million credit cards have been hijacked, you know. It's scary how easy it is for people to get your credit information, your social security number, your bank information. Pretty alarming. One woman, a single mom from Atlanta, found that somebody had used her credit card to run up about $37,000 in charges, including a car and a plush $1,200 mattress. The single mom said, it's scary knowing that someone else has been living my life. That is scary to think somebody else is living your life, but I see it all the time. I watch people allow other people to live their lives. I watch teenagers who do just about anything to be accepted by a certain group. Why do you think gangs flourish? It happens in churches. It happens in religious groups. This need to be accepted, and so they, I'll become what they want me to be political parties do it. You must be like me, agree like me, think like me, vote like me on every issue. Stop using your brain. No, I won't let you tell me who I am, what I am, what I can be, what I can do. No political group, no religious group has that right to do so. And if you're secure, they won't. I won't fit in anybody's box. God made you unique. Don't get in a group, a gang, and clone yourself. Well, I'm a white Caucasian Republican. or well, I'm a black African American Democrat. Well, go ahead. Get in the cookie cutter. Don't think for yourself. Let somebody else being highly paid think for you. I won't do it. And could I just pitch this? This is just messing a little bit. We have a wide variety of people, races, and nationalities in this church for which I thank God every day. But I want to tell you this. With a political climate like it is. Here's a scripture you need to know. Strife and contention cometh only by pride. Only by pride. Now that means, and God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't walk around arrogant and pride about what you think or what you think you know. If you know more than someone else based on their background, it's incumbent upon you to show more grace. You are really just telling us you're arrogant, stiff-necked, and you're a know-it-all, and you create strife. A church is no place for that. Not at all. You could just say, Rick, I don't agree, I, I think this. I can respect your difference and not agree with it. But don't get caught up in all the drama and meanness and judgmentalness. This is the family of God. God says no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, no Republican, no Democrat. Leave that at the door. That does not occur in the family of God. We have a spiritual birth, a spiritual kingdom, and we're of all races and nationality, tongues in the kingdom of God. It ticks me off when preachers get up and do that. So I'm not here to pitch you some ideology except kingdom, the kingdom ideology. And it may take people a long time to come up to where you are based on their background based on their experiences, based on how they were born, who raised them, where they were. I'm from South Carolina, deep South, before Martin Luther King, be- before there was uh, uh, freedom and uh, laws against racism and bigotry. So all that stuff went on when I was a kid raised in the South. So you're hearing all this all the time, and it, sh- and it has an effect on you. And if you were being discriminated against, it has an effect on you, Right? And so it's re- so you know with God's help and washing of the word we can wash that residue off of us and become honestly decent people I don't hate anybody because you don't see it my way so what happens is people then will become whoever they need to be to be accepted by a group if I don't teach something the first question I was asked I'm getting way off script here, aren't I? The first question I was asked when I came to this city with my wife and two little girls to start this church, first question I was asked at a religious gathering was, what do you believe about tongues? Which I interpreted meaning, if I don't give you the answer you want, you won't like me. And I could end up being the best friend you ever had. How stupid. How stupid. Well, what do you believe about end times? What do you believe about the rapture? What do you believe about once saved, always saved? What do you believe about prosperity? What do you believe about... What do you believe? Oh, shut up! Shut up! And furthermore, I no. I don't need any encouragement. I'm getting off off track here. So why do we care so much about what other people think? I don't care. I want. If I'm wrong, I want to know I'm wrong, and so I can say I'm sorry. Yeah, but other than that, I don't care who doesn't like me in a particular religious group or party. I'm not, they're bought and paid for. Very few of them think for themselves. They've got a retirement to think about. They've got their career to think about. And because they're run by a board and they're not the real leader, they could be fired on the spot. So they have to be a parrot and they have to say what's expected. Gag me. You're a slave too. I don't care what race you're from. You're a slave and you're thinking, see? Why why do we end up codependent in relationships where we need to be needed? I like to be needed, but I don't need to be needed. It's because we're looking to have significance in our lives. So we spend our lives trying to cram a square peg of a relationship with imperfect people into that round hole of our heart, and then our identity gets stolen. And we end up letting other people live our lives. If you do it long enough, somewhere along the line, you're going to get really hurt. Haven't you found out people, even good people, will eventually hurt you, let you down? As healthy and as good as relationships can be, they don't possess unfailing love. People will betray you. People will break promises. People will exclude you, reject you, wound you, disappoint you, and sadly, even some cases, abuse you. And when you get hurt by somebody that you were expecting to complete you, then all that acceptance and security and all that significance you craving is gone. And your identity gets stolen with it. And when that happens, you've got this bitterness and anger towards somebody. Now you turn into an angry, distant, cynical, oversensitive, wear your feelings on your sleeve kind of a person. And you become withdrawn, selfish, you become self-absorbed, you get distant, you're non-trusting, you're hateful, resentful, and bitter, and when bitterness hacks into your life, it will mess you up. Job chapter 5, verse 2, resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. Job 18, verse 4, you are only hurting yourself with your anger. Boy, is that true. You think you're hurting the other person that hurt you? Because you're mad, but you're only hurting yourself. Folks, there's a high cost associated with bitterness in your life. You know, hurt people hurt people, and it can destroy your life. Let me give you a fast list, maybe 10 things bitterness does in your life. They're so joyful, you'll want to stay bitter the rest of your life. Number one, it causes spiritual blindness. 1 John 1, 6. God says if we hate other people, we hold a grudge, we stumble around in darkness. Number two, if we don't want to forgive others, we will never feel the forgiveness God has for us, ever. Matthew 6, verse 14. See, it's not about salvation. It's just that I never feel the the forgiveness that God has for us, right? And then we move on. Number three, when I hold bitterness against somebody else, it affects my prayers. Mark 11, verse 25. God says, listen, you need to make it right before we talk about this issue. Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. Fourth thing it does, it's toxic to all my relationships. Hebrews 12, verse 15, bitterness just leaks and leaks into all kind of relationships, even affecting innocent bystanders. People that never even hurt you get hurt because of what it's done to you. So you get mad, you go into a company and shoot people because you're bitter at how you were treated or fired or let go, and people who had nothing to do with you are hurt. See, the writer of Hebrews says you got to dig bitterness up by the root or it'll spread like a cancer and ruin all kinds of relationships. Number five, bitterness becomes my prison. You want the person who hurt you to be locked up But if you hang on to bitterness and unforgiveness, you are the one who gets locked up. Number six, bitterness makes my offering unacceptable to God. Matthew 5, verse 24, God says, before you worship me with your sacrifices, go make things right with your brother. He says, how can you say I love God and I hate my brother? Number seven, bitterness and unforgiveness will change your personality. David wrote this in Psalm 73, verse 22, I became like an ignorant, brutal beast. It changes who you are. It leads me away from God into big trouble. Number eight, it causes you to make decisions based on those negative emotions rather than upon the guidance and truth of God's Word, Proverbs 28. Number nine, it destroys my health my well-being. It will tear you up physically. It will wreck your immune system. Studies show that bitterness will mess your body up. It leaks into your joints. It leaks into your stomach. Some of you who say the person who hurt you is a pain in the neck are probably right. Bitterness is probably why you got a pain in the neck or somewhere south of your spinal column. Some of you are slow, but ask a neighbor. He'll explain that. And it's bitterness that's causing that. Job 21, verse 23 through 25. Some may stay healthy until the day they die. Amen. They die happy and at ease. Others have no happiness at all. They live and die with bitter hearts. How would you like to have that on your tombstone? He or she lived and died with a bitter heart. Let me say forgiveness is not forgetting. People say forgive and forget. But it's hard to forget. It's going to leave a scar. Forgiveness is not forgetting, it's letting go of resentment, my right to get even. You forgive in order to heal. It's not seeking revenge. It's giving up my right to get even and trusting the justice of God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it stops the cycle of abuse. Some people hang on to unforgiveness for 20 years, and they keep hurting and hurting and hurting, and the person that hurt them is even dead. And the only person suffering is them. And they hang on and relive it and relive it towards another person. So forgiveness allows God to touch your emotional core and enable you to forgive from your heart. So the goal of forgiveness is healing. That takes time. The goal of forgiveness is freedom. And that's a choice. It's a choice you can make. It's not an emotion. I can choose to forgive. First time we had our home robbed 30 years ago first or whatever, I remember the first prayer I prayed was forgiveness. Oh, I want justice. But I prayed forgiveness. I wasn't going to let these idiots that broke into my home and stole everything. I wasn't going to let them control my life or the outcome of my life. And I declared the thief would restore sevenfold. And I think my wife has lived to see that come true. See, you know, God's word actually works. You know, you may find that strange, but It's not a coloring book, and it's not Reader's Digest. It's alive and powerful, and if God said it and you believe it, you get a good result out of this thing. Let me give you something funny. This is a poem written by a woman when something bad happened to her. Here's the prayer she prayed after an event with a very unreasonable and nasty neighbor, and that neighbor lived four houses down. Here's what Molly Watts wrote. Dear Lord, it's me again. Have you got a little time? It'll only take a minute. I got something on my mind. You know, I got this neighbor and your help I'll have to seek, for I find it very difficult to turn the other cheek. You see, we got two poodles that we've come to love a lot. And Lord, you know dogs must go outside to use the pot. Most always they stay in our yard. They don't stray far from home. But last Thursday they decided to. Her front yard, they would roam. Lord, they don't know any better. And they didn't mean any harm, but they made a small deposit in the middle of her lawn. Well, she went and got her shovel, and with words a little scorched, she marched up to my door, and Lord, she threw it on my porch. Love thy neighbor as thyself are words that came from you, and if I want to get to heaven, I must want that for her too. So I am trying to love her, even though it's sometimes hard, and I'm making sure my poodles don't wander near her yard. I'll pray she'll get to heaven, but should there be no one around, could you grant me just one wish and put some dog dew in her crown? (laughs) No, that's honest. Here's God's answer back. My child, I heard you praying and I've listened to your plea. I think I have an answer if you'll listen now to me. When both you and your neighbor have been up here for a while, perhaps she will dance the golden streets and step in a great big pile. And then, my child, you'll go to her and help her to her seat. And with your towel and basin, you will humbly wash her feet." Wow. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice you can make. Look at Colossians 3, verse 13, the New Living Translation. You must make allowances for each other's faults, no matter how nasty, mean, or hard-hearted the other person is, and forgive the person who offends you. Why? Remember. The Lord forgave you, Sparky, I added that, so you must forgive others. And it's only by the grace of God you can pull that off. It's only when you allow God to love you and experience His unfailing, unconditional grace and mercy, you'll be able to extend that grace and mercy to somebody else that's hurt you. That little phrase, unfailing love, occurs over 40 times in the Bible. Every time it's used, it's in connection with the only one who can give it? Psalms thirty-two, ten. Unfailing love surround those who trust the Lord. Psalms thirty-three, five. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. Psalms thirty-six, seven. How priceless is Your unfailing love, O God? Psalms one hundred and thirty, verse seven. Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love and an overflowing supply of salvation. Psalm 17, verse 7 and 8, show me your unfailing love in wonderful ways. You saved with your strength those who seek refuge from their enemies. Guard me as the apple of your eye. You, did you know you are the apple, the pupil of God's eye? He goes on, hide me in the shadow of your wings. In other words, wrap your strong loving arms around me. Hey, we all long to be loved with a love like that. We all want to be the apple of somebody's eye. We all want unfailing love, one that is compassionate, one that is dependable, one that is unconditional, one that is perfect. Ah, but no human can provide that. Deep within our hearts is a God-shaped vacuum. It's perfect for Jesus in every way. No hearts too big, no hearts too small. Jesus can fit every one of them. Listen to what God says to you that are lonely and feeling like something has been ripped from your life. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Don't be afraid. You won't suffer shame. Don't fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Maybe you don't have parents who love you. Maybe you don't even know who they were. Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. God says, I'll be a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. You don't have to have had a good natural family to have a great spiritual family. That's what the church is. It's a spiritual family. And then you break it down into connect groups, and you've got your own little group of brothers and sisters. That's an interesting relational term, brothers and sisters in Christ. So you may have had a wrecked home, no home. You may have been adopted or given away. You may have been unwanted. God says, no, no, no. I'll be a father to you. You didn't have one or you had an abuse. I'll be a father to you and I'm going to put you in the family. So it's a nonsense to stay alone. God, God's got an answer. I can't count the number of people at Summit over our years who came here with no relatives or family support. Their life was a wreck with substance abuse, low self-esteem, and, and hopelessness. And now, so many have found a spiritual family here, and many have become whole and productive. That's a miracle. Now their lives have meaning and purpose. And that's what unfailing love does. It sets the lonely in families. Listen to Ephesians 3. I pray that from God's glorious unlimited resources, He will give you mighty inner strength through His Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in Him. May your roots go down deep into the soil in God's marvelous love, and may you have the power to understand or grasp as God's people how wide, how long, how high, how deep His love, unfailing love, really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you'll never fully understand it. Then you'll be filled with the fullness of life in power that comes from God. So what Paul says he wants us to grasp or understand is more than just head knowledge the root word he uses is rust it means to eat all the way through paul is saying that his prayer is that we would let the high wide deep love of god eat all the way through us that we would really grasp what it means to be loved with an unfailing love when i was in high school and college i could memorize anything i did that with calculus in my senior year of college i didn't understand a bit of it i don't even remember anything about it but how to s- spell calculus but i memorized it and i think a lot of people look at the bible like that they just want to know what's going to be on the test and they scan through it and they memorize john 3:16 for god so loved the world maybe the lord's prayer maybe the top 10 commandments but they never grasp how high how deep how long and how wide The love of God is for them. They just don't get it. They just memorized it. And many of them have gone to church for years. And they become some of the most mean-spirited, judgmental, critical, cynical, ornery kind of people. Don't look next to yourself, okay? And their relationships are lousy. They're hurtful to their families. They use their friendships. They paint on a smile. They show up for church. They might sing a song or two. But they never get to... Grasp, understand the love of God for them. And they never get to know God. They never get to really know themselves. Can I pause just a second and say, I was sitting on the back porch with one of my best friends, Ron Corzine, who lives up in Fort Worth now, but he did live here. And we have come down the road a long way. We've seen a lot. And we were both taught in seminary and in our university and college training before that. And I remember I was asking questions, probing questions. You think God gives one thought to this? Do you think God has ever changed his mind about this? We just ask questions people are afraid to ask in church. Just And, and I felt like being older and having come down the road farther, a great many Christians just don't really know. They know God, but they don't know God. They don't understand what He's really like. So when they screw up, they leave church, they run off, they break relationships, they feel like shame. And I thought, you don't know this God. You know, you bring your shame, you bring your failure, you bring it to Him. You, you, you don't run from God, you run to God when you've screwed up and failed because He's merciful. Now, I didn't memorize that. I know it. It's eaten through me. I've seen it in people, in myself. And they go through life, these people looking for acceptance and security and significance in all the wrong places, and they wreck relationships that don't give them those things that only God could give. And then they blame you. Say, you can't give me what only God can give me. No spouse can give me what only God can give me. No job, no employment, no amount of money, no amount of fame or popularity can give me what only God can give me. And all an idol is, is something I look to, to give me what only God can give me. That could be money or fame or a hot body or whatever you want. Sam, you, you want the hot body. Okay, Sam. That's why Paul prayed this prayer, because unfailing love is not found in people. And he prayed that we would let that unfailing love of God capture our heart till it ate all the way through us, and when we do allow it, then we discover our true identity, that you are a treasured child of the Most High God. That's who you really are. You remember the movie with Matt Damon where fishermen find him floating face up in the ocean and they bring him on board, treat his gunshot wound, nurse him back to health, take him back to their port and drop him off? He doesn't know who he is, doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know anyone else. But through a chip they recovered under his skin, He gets into a bank, into a safety deposit box, and inside is a stack of money, a gun, several passports. You remember the name of the movie? Born Identity. It's about a guy trying to figure out who he really is. And what's cool about Christianity is that we have a born-again identity. Through Jesus, we discover now who we are. Not who Satan says I am, not who I was, but who I am in Christ. John 1, 12, but to all who believe him and accept him, he gives the right to become the children of God. Can you see the simple mathematical equation? Believe, accept, you become. The Bible says that if you believe what Jesus said, that he's the son of God, he's the way, the truth, and the life, that he died and rose again from the dead, you believe that, that he died for your sins and you accept it, God will make you his child. You just accept his unfailing love. Believe plus accept equals become a child of God and everybody tries to make that so hard going to heaven is not hard living on earth is hard staying married is hard raising kids is hard I ought to be able to get amen in here if you were african-american church I'd be getting shouted at making money is hard running a business is hard building a dream or a church is hard going to heaven is not hard sparky because you didn't pay a dime for it. You get a free ride by faith in what Jesus did. And folks, you can't get any more accepted than Jesus' acceptance or a father accepting you as his child. You can't get any more secure than that and more significant than that. 1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that's who we are. So in Christ, I am completely accepted. Now, I'm going to give you some things that you can quote off the screen with me in unison that God says about this, my acceptance. You ready? Say with me. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I've been justified. I am united with the Lord, and I am one in spirit with Him. I've been bought with a price. I belong to God. I'm a member of Christ's body, the church. I've been adopted as God's child. He chose me. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sin, and I am complete in Christ. Good on you. Now, that's, that's the identity of acceptance from the Father. So in Christ, I'm not only completely accepted, we're going to do another one, I am totally secure. Listen to what God says about that. Read it with me. I am free forever from condemnation. I am assured that God works all things together for good. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that God will finish the good work He started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I am hidden with Christ in God. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. I can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me." Wow! See in Christ, I am accepted, I am secure, and last, I am significant. God says this, read it with me, I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I am a branch of the true vine, Jesus, a channel of His life. I've been chosen in this life to bear fruit. I am a personal, spirit-empowered witness of Christ." I am the temple of God. He lives in me. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in heavenly realms. I am God's workmanship, created for good works. I may approach God with freedom and confidence, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. Amen. See, folks— Jesus completes you, and He will complete you if you allow Him. The Bible doesn't just say God has an unfailing love. He proved it on the cross when He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I have come to take away the sin of the world. What if Jesus hanging on the cross said, I'll get you when I come back? He didn't. Maybe we would, but He said, Father, forgive them. This is the God that people don't get. They just can't handle mercy. They, wanna, they can't understand grace. They want to earn every darn thing. I must deserve it. I must earn it. You have failed enough that we don't know about. You don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. Grace is unmerited favor. You cannot. For by grace are you saved through your faith, not of works. Would you knock it off evaluating people by their works? These greatest people in the Bible were total failures. I mean, how would you like Abraham to be your marriage enrichment teacher? I mean, he's got Hagar going. He's got Ishmael. He wasn't even living with his wife when she died. You've got David. He steals a man's wife. You've got him as a lousy father. He's got multiple concubines. He, he's a mess, but they all love God, and they all decided to obey God, but personally they had failure, and I'm glad it's there, or you'd think I've got to glow in the dark and be in stained glass windows in cathedrals, or I won't go to heaven, nonsense, heaven's going to be full of bad people, you you might be there, (laughs) I'm telling you the truth, and today You can believe that and accept that and become the person God always wanted you to be, His most loved child. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit SummitSA.com.